Hello and welcome to Economic and Political Weekly's podcast show Research Radio. I'm your host Abhishek and every Monday we will talk to scholars about their research methodology and process, what they didn't include in their research, how research can further equity and much more. This week we have Dr. Afia Sherbanozia who will be talking to us about Pakistan's Aurat March that takes place every year across the country to mark Women's Day. Past demonstrations have called for accountability for violence against women by men, resources for affected women, the reclamation of public spaces for women, and much more. The march received severe backlash from both conservative and liberal groups recently, and Dr. Zia examines the criticism by tracing the history of the government's treatment of women. She also shares insight into the fraught relationship between religion and patriarchy. Dr. Zia is the author of the book Faith and Feminism in Pakistan: Religious Agency or Secular Autonomy. She's a member of the Secular Rights Group Women's Action Forum and she's a feminist activist based in Karachi, Pakistan. Thank you so much for joining us Dr. Zia. That's a pleasure, Abhishek. You formally written about the feminist movement in Pakistan for over a decade. What led you to focus on it and particularly on the role of religion and secularism? I joined the Women's Action Forum in the 1990s when I was a student, Abhishek. And Women's Action Forum or WAF is this widely recognized lobby and pressure group in Pakistan and it spearheaded the resistance against the military dictatorship of General Ziaul Haq all through the 1980s. So this group of women across different cities but especially Lahore frequently used to violate curfew restrictions and section 144 to protest against General Ziaul Haq's sort of fig leaf islamization project particularly against the Islamic laws that he codified under the Hadood ordinances in which amongst um, other edicts it also criminalized adultery and consensual sex you know this led to many cases of state led persecution and vigilantism and so injustices against women and religious minorities and even the late uh, human rights lawyer Asma Jahangir and several prominent women associated with the left uh, were some founder members and these women of waf decided after nearly a decade of debate and strategic lessons and dialogue amongst themselves but also interchanges with women from islamic political parties and groups and even in the communities they decided to take on the identity of a secular movement and to pursue a secular politics in the islamic republic of pakistan and so i joined the movement during this period of discussion and debate and so i'm privy to the fact that this decision was not born out of some reaction or some western liberal secular islamophobia which has become a kind of a fashionable allegation by several post secularists particularly pakistani scholars younger generation who cast these allegations casually or even you know younger activists who try to impeach an older generation about their secular politics but actually this decision was very much a strategic decision which was interested and invested in resisting islamic majoritarianism and also uh, the political mullah led national conservatism and abhishek all of this was patronized and promoted by the state so you know it was waf's consensus on adopting a secular position and secular identity emerged from a realization that there were lots of limitations to the project of reclaiming women's feminist rights within islam and that it was impossible to strip religious discourse entirely of its patriarchal baggage in any meaningful way that would enable feminist transformation of course you can get rights or empowerment within nobody denies that 
but feminism is about transformation so anyway this women's social and political movements in pakistan let's just say it's been shaped predominantly by the relationship with the state with military rule and islamic politics and the book that was you know the one cult textbook that was written was in 1987 by mumtaz and shaheed but after that there was a big vacuum under the, after the zia years where there was a depoliticized generation there was subpar standards of social sciences and even overall education and feminists got sucked into the ngo world you know so there was no cohesive or published feminist scholarship about this relationship and so i was interested in documenting this but i did so with a special focus on the events of 9/11 and how this event shaped uh, the kind of new scholarship that was emerging from a new generation of pakistani students women and men and social scientists something that really stuck out to me was your involvement in the women's action forum from a young age were there one or two experiences from that time that inform some of your work today look one thing was just being in that moment where you know under ziaul haq the state really changed in terms of its it used to be that uh, women's movement under uh, begum rana liaquat ali uh, and even later you know she founded all pakistan women's association she founded that and there was quite a lot of patronage and even sort of benevolent rights based kind of assistance and extension by the state it was a benevolent state at best you know charitable led movement took place even political movements women's democratic women's association was a marxist oriented organization worked from a class perspective so all of that happened what ziaul haq did was he just sort of ruptured that relationship and turned it such that women became the linchpin the targets of this performance and conversion baptizing of what was considered a secular state at least in, in terms of constitution and theory turned it baptized it into this islamic republic by making women the actors the receivers the symbols of this islamization so women's action forum i think what realized this really early on and used to picket have direct action be on the streets to transform the state through their struggle and right so in the conversations i think this like i said the secular versus faith based strategies it was a very interesting moment to be there because it's not just that they came from the west or they came from universities and they decided to adopt this theory as their identity it was very much in their experiences and there was a lot of dialogue at the mo- at that time with jamaat e islami women of jamaat e islami in lahore who were very politically active also the women of that political party a uh, sort of non urban movements like sindhani tehreek the nationalist party uh, the women's wing associated with the nationalist party of qaumi awami tehreek and so there was this cross class and uh, cross identities intersectional kind of movement it was a very interesting moment to be over there but the other important thing abhishek was that the ngo movement also at that time was growing and women's involvement in it was was becoming richer uh, the research was rich a lot of collectivity you know i think the main difference if you ask me between how i see the movements of of the 1990s uh, and now is that collectivism was differently defined it was really physical personalized kind of collective politics in the urban based movement whereas now there's been a shift and far more interaction and relationships with the political parties and with democracy remember this that these movements were the women's movements were very invested in the idea of they were pro democracy movements and used to engage with the state for everything including asma jahangir hina jalani lawyers changing laws going and fighting cases directly in the courts and i think the other important identity marker of that movement in wav was the relationship with uh, the first woman leader of muslim countries which was benazir bhutto 
that also joined their hopes, their understanding, their relationship with the state, with government, and what it meant to have a woman. And there were a lot of comparatives done with, you know, Indira Gandhi in, in India and Benazir Bhutto here in Hasina in um, Bangladesh. There was an important moment for South Asian politics and a lot of the founder members of Women's Action Forum and other women associated with WAF in some way or form or manner were in leadership roles during this very contentious and difficult time in the state. So they were courageous, brave women, you know, and uh, there was there was tremendous amount to learn from them. And many of them had a left bearing. So I think all of these informed my understanding and, and I cut my teeth on this kind of politics. And you've already started talking about the post 9-11 context as one where feminists shifted the way they framed their politics. Can you tell me more about this? In the post-9-11 period, there was, I noticed and observed, there was a new body of scholarship produced by Pakistani students, which was post-secularist in its framing and argument. It was largely inspired by Talal Assad's work on formations of the secular, by Sabah Mahmood's work on piety of politics. Much of it was produced predominantly by those who are Pakistani diaspora or those who were studying or chose to pursue academic careers outside of Pakistan. Some of it rehabilitates Muslimness as an alter parity, an alter parity source of rights. And another group of scholars who, who would consider themselves, you know, left or sympathetic to left politics, they too privileged their focus almost entirely on the imperialism of the war on terror and bypassed or suspended the critique and in some cases were just even sympathetic with Muslim men and even their patriarchal practices against women because they didn't want to reinforce the global stereotype of the terrorist Muslim man or the evil Muslim man. But this was not a fruitful feminist position. And this body of work almost exclusively emerged from scholars, Abhishek, who were associated with the Lahore University of Management Sciences with LUMS. In other words, this literature is Punjab-centric. Now, this has significance in the context of Pakistan, certainly, right? It's not a coincidence. So my issue was this post-9-11, post-secular scholarship tended to discredit or at best ignore liberal and or secular feminist movements and their successes in and for Pakistan. You know, my book does list these scholars, most of them who have been working almost entirely on Muslim women's identities, Pakistani Muslim women's identities while downplaying their oppression and their struggles and also not at all acknowledging their secular resistance to majoritarianism. And instead, it focused on Muslim women's religious agency and piety. It, In other words, it privileged their religious identities as if Pakistani Muslim women were void of any liberal desires or never posed any secular resistance or had no feminist politics. You know, it just submerged that, erased that almost. None of these theses or other theses in production for 10 years uh, by students in Western academies that were produced during this war on terror period, none of them focused on Pakistani women's economic status, their unequal access to legal rights, or the violence perpetrated against them by Muslim men, including the Taliban. Neither did they focus on how the women of the Jamaat-e-Islami legislated in parliament or their fairly repressive rule in the provincial assembly of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, where they had vigilante politics and they were preventing women from voting. All of this was pretty much ignored or sanitized by 
anthropologists and scholars, with the notable exception of Sana Harun and Sadaf Ahmed. But and certainly there was nothing produced on Pakistani women's sexual agency or the progress made by liberal progressive legislation or movements across the nation. So what I'm arguing is this is not a coincidence. And I wrote my book partially as a corrective but also to document the secular resistance of working class women's movements in Pakistan and how these have been successful in gaining their rights. Right. It seems like there's a move to write for particular audiences. And while it's important to identify and name imperialism and the way it works, the kind of solidarity Pakistani activists suggest should have had a role in the kind of scholarship people in the diaspora were producing. So they weren't downplaying the impact of patriarchy in Pakistan. I think the politics of location in this post-modernist, post-structuralist, post-9-11 kind of period was just, you know, politically incorrect to discuss. There was a huge defensiveness from scholars, you know, saying that this should not be a consideration. And I find it unfortunate and I don't agree with it. And so I, you know, I was one of the few who put it down in writing. And so the backlash is also easier when, when there's things to quote and to sort of the outrage that comes is, is quite easy. But I think what's unfortunate, I have no issues with conceptual debates. We had them within WAF. Look, let me make it clear. It's not as if every member of WAF jumped happily onto this bandwagon or, or just blindly took up the position of being secular or not. Of course, there's continuing tensions and the different understandings of what the secular is, even within WAF, right? And there are many who practice in a different way. But by and large, it's a forum. But by and large, most of them would agree that you know, the patriarchal baggage within religion has made it very difficult for us. And there were organizations or, or leaders or individuals who conducted research or tried to do the reformative, reinterpretive projects, women living under Muslim law. But their larger aim was always to move towards a secular public space and sort of make that distinction between the private and the public. Now, that was problematic even for me. Um, and some of us didn't agree with that positioning. Because what we said is actually that process, that approach, that methodology emboldened and empowered these pietist, latent pietist movements in communities and in, uh, in society and emboldened them to, to actually morph into political beings later. Whether it was Al-Huda, for which all of this literature focused on how it was a benign, docile agency and how they empowered themselves within a movement in a private way, not in a public political way. There was a lot of almost romance, but certainly interest in this kind of potential for empowerment within by looking at the women of Al-Huda and also with the Jamia Hafsa women who then you know, took to the streets even recently with the Aurat March that happened earlier this month. You know, for me, the argument was that agency is a latent potential in, which always spills over into political action at some point or the other, you know. Otherwise, you know, so so I think that that was the main uh, core of disagreement uh, that, you know, something that can help you privately uh, is, is all right and it empowers you and that's fine. And we don't want to we don't want to look at the consequences of that agency, which was my disagreement with Sabah Mahmood's theory as well. Uh, you can't just, you know, as feminists, you can't just say, OK, I've studied that as an anthropologist up to this point. I'm not interested in the politics of this or, or this is their politics. You have to look at the consequences of this empowerment of the, of the right wing and of the agency of, of pious women, what it does, what its consequences are and what it means for, for feminist movements. It's limitations for feminist movements, you know, observation and, and writing a book on it is great. But what does it mean for feminist movements? What does it translate into? 
And in your article, you identify three broad approaches through which women demanded rights. What were they and what does each enable and foreclose? For me, the most interesting engagement or encounters has been within, between the Islamic Feminist Project, you know, which is looking for rights within Islam and, and looking for authenticity within, for women's rights, um, and the Secular Project. And it's actually not a secular project per se that is launched in Pakistan or has some formal bearing in Pakistan. I have repeatedly discussed this in my book as Secular Resistance. Um, and and that is a far more, I think, accurate picture of, of what's been happening amongst not just women's action from, but I argue whether it is uh, the lady health workers uh, movement and work, whether it is peasant women's movements and collectivism and resistance, or it is uh, women councillors who, who get elected and work at the union council level. All of their politics I have shown in the book is, is very much framed within what I call secular resistance. They don't use religion as a prop. They don't use it as a mobilizer. They don't appeal to fatwas. They don't use the assistance of, of religious clergy or religious state. And they are largely successful uh, in all three cases. And they have resisted religious patriarchy, particularly the lady health workers against the Taliban when they were being persecuted and murdered for their polio work or for contraception. They resisted this. And I don't, I don't understand the discomfort that it causes, but you know, the word secular has had a baggage discredited by the clergy in Pakistan first by being termed as ladiniyat or void of religion, which is incorrect, which even the post-secularists have been arguing it's not void of religion, but it doesn't appeal to for religious ends or props or means or methods, you know. So anyway, the problem with the Islamic feminist project is, I argue, has yielded more benefits to entrenching patriarchy. And it strengthens majoritarianism rather than yielding liberatory results for women. And that's something that, you know, the Islamic feminist sympathizers need to engage with because I think it is by stealth enabled and emboldened the rise of pietist women's groups like the Al-Huda that I mentioned. And, you know, nobody identifies, in fact, in most cases, nobody necessarily identifies themselves as Islamic feminists, but their arguments would be those that formal Islamic feminists would make, essentially about looking for rights using the Quran and Sharia and Islamic tradition for solutions, for authenticity, for mobilizing a movement or, uh, or rights that would be acceptable for Muslims, you know. But I, but my argument has been that, you know, uh, yes, of course, I, I acknowledge that it makes it it empowers it 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 has certain promises to offer. But you know, I've said that that's not a feminist project, right? To transform, it doesn't talk about transforming relationships, transforming the state, um, becoming equal in in in, in absolute ways, and or adhering to universal human rights. It doesn't do all of that. In fact, in fact. These women that I'm mentioning, you know, women of Al-Huda, Jamia Hafsa, Minhajul Quran, and other women of the rear guard who belong to groups of Islamic groups or pious groups, they defy feminist expression and they challenge feminists and women's rights activists. And again, this is shown in the recent Aurat March. And of course, these women have agency. Nobody denies their agency. I'm just saying this agency is poised to become political and the performance, the private aspect of it tips over very quickly into real politics one day or the other. I've noticed this. So this defensiveness that one, you know, secularists are accusing religious women of having false consciousness or denying them agency is utter nonsense. Nobody is doing that. But this cannot deflect from the reality that we need to scrutinize the consequences when they exercise that agency and their politics. 
you know i've never agreed to this anthropological argument to say oh we're only showcasing their interior subjectivities and humanizing them you can't completely suspend or ignore or even sanitize their politics or their expressions of agency so that's why in my article i was anticipating uh, in the epw article how feminists will constantly face confrontations and direct challenges from pious movements because they politic against the common consensus of what is islamic gendered order and especially the islamic sexual order and the challenge that much of this criticism is directed at feminists today is coming from women qua women i think that's important it's not like you know the 80s where men of the right but also sometimes of the left would accuse feminists of being westernized and you know looking too much at sexual liberation and not looking at the class question this is not coming now from organized political parties like the jamaat e islami but from a more diffused islamic social movements which is far more efficacious at discrediting feminism and now more recently abhishek these movements are also targeting the resurgence of a young left movement the rear guard makes more effective use arguably of social media in this regard in my opinion um so i think the younger feminists who used to dismiss the previous generation for being unnuanced secularists uh, or those who set up binaries uh, or who even used to lecture on the need to hold dialogue with pietist women as if they were the first to think of these strategies they've only recently started feeling the heat of this backlash and the discomfort of being confronted by religious women as i said particularly in this year's aurat march and a lot of this piety is you know this idea that it's men who organize it it's also nonsense when you have agency then you've got to acknowledge that agency in totality a lot of celebrities in pakistan like in egypt have started saying that we forego and we are giving up our forfeiting our professional careers and we are going to become pious people now we're going to go and learn religion we're going to become islamic you know and i've recently started tracking a whole bunch of these celebrities who are rejecting their secular careers as actors and and entertainers and going the religious path it's a whole movement in egypt uh, with dancers and singers and actors who become you know they come on tv and they become hosts of religious programming and they do the whole performance as well there is something called pietist agency and it does not you know sort of embrace feminist ends and feminist politics and we need to get our heads around that which doesn't mean that you have to have confrontation and war and battle you can of course have dialogue but you know you also need to learn something from the historical record on the relationship between the two and and see how it works in practical terms rather than just saying oh we need to do this and we shouldn't have binaries and you know one feminist is is true hardcore on this you need to see how it plays itself out by practicing it for our notes from the field segment we'd like to learn about a few experiences that you found particularly insightful during your research process as i said women's action forum used to be on the streets protesting against the hadood ordinances and the zina ordinance the adultery law and which had become problematic especially because it merged rape under adultery you know and so a lot of of women who were who were raped were being accused of of committing adultery you know women used to go on the streets to protest it and women of the right wing used to also be there this myth that women of the right wing don't protest or don't work for cases of violence against women is is inaccurate you know as i said they are also committed to this idea of improving society of giving women rights they just have a different goal and a different method of getting there so when they used to converge on mal road to protest the zina ordinance because they used to say or protest against a rape case when 
Women's Action Forum argues to demand the end of Islamic laws or ask for secular state, the right-wing Jamaat Islami used to physically depart from that protest movement. So when we arrive at Orat March, it is actually a series of earlier events, confrontations, face-offs that have led to this uh, led to this moment of, and I think the most relevant part or, or purpose of the Orat March is this I, two ideas. One, they are reclaiming the notion of International Women's Day and what it means as economic empowerment and physical empowerment of women by taking it back onto the streets, which used to be an NGO event. It used to be celebrated in hotels and in rooms and private spaces, but now they've taken it back onto the street and public spaces uh, and are just asking for the basic right to occupy Pakistan. And the other important contribution is their demands are now bolder, are about freedom from violence in a different kind of, of expression of violence than just you know, the idea of rape, physical violence, or, you know, state-led violence, they are talking about the private sector. They're talking about the private realm and how important it is to recognize the kind of abuse that is taking place in terms of sexual harassment in their workplaces, in their homes, in their relationships. And that's a new boundary that they've broken. There is this myth that, you know, this is uh, urban and only uh, middle class or, or upper class uh, interest. But I think my efforts and my observation show that the working class women's movements that I have been tracking in my for my book in earlier years, of course, these issues are important to them. This is a, a sort of misconception even amongst feminists who are in dialogue on this. This happened with the Kandil Baloch case that this is not, you know, and Kandil Baloch was working class, you know. So this notion that sex is not a working class issue or demanding sexual liberation or sexual rights is not a working class issue, this is something that we need to resolve as feminists. Too many of us keep making, repeating this misconception, you know, it's it's how it's framed that we should not be improprietors, that, you know, it isolates and it alienates women from the working classes. I think the challenge is to, to show how they are connected, how physical labor and bodily labor and bodily autonomy and health and violence are all, and sexual desire, you know, are all interconnected. And you cannot isolate one from the body and say, we leave that right for later. Uh, and sexual autonomy is not up for discussion. It's not appropriate. And let's discuss women's labor wages and reproductive health. And also, they're all part of the same body, rights that are associated with the same body. I think that's the challenge that I've noticed. Lady health workers worked on contraception, on bodily autonomy. You know, we cannot forget that. And the joining of politics, sexual politics, is something that all movements have at some point or the other confronted. And So I think in terms of fields from the uh, notes from the field, I think for me, uh, this has been a long time coming. This division between personal, what's considered to be personal rights and political rights, this has to be joined. And there are many, many examples, you know, Sindhiani Tariq used to rescue women from forced marriages, from forced conversions. And they were a Marxist, you know, organization or, or, or fall within a Marxist ideology. Of course, they, this it's not just about class rights. This is very much about feminism is about interconnected rights and intersectionality. So you can't privilege one over the other. There is a generational gap in this also. Previous feminists have not focused on sexuality. They're not familiar with the theoretical bases or foundations of these. And the younger ones, the younger feminists are, are sort of perhaps not able to or not 
uh, as committed to state uh, structures. They're looking at reparative justice, looking at the personal politics, and they understand and they acknowledge that the state needs to change and it's a problem, etc. But there's not that much engagement in the courts, in police stations, in unities, other than mobilizing and performing. But you know, the daily, everyday, routine kind of commitment and engagement that is required uh, sometimes gets lost. So I think both generations have a lot to offer and will become powerful if we can bridge this gap between the younger collective and um, not rejecting the formal legal process and the older group understanding what personal sexual politics means. Um, and of course, professional women and lawyers. Uh, it's a rich sort of potential um, in Pakistan. Uh-huh. In what ways did the online sphere prove to be more conducive, a platform for feminists to coordinate and plan the Aurat March? So where else can they do it? So you see, in universities, heavily censored spaces, there is no, like I said, the feminist collectives are small. They don't have the kind of resources to do outreach. Uh, univers private universities tend to be uh, limited public universities, heavily censored, surveillance is strong. So, of course, online space was going to be going to be pivotal in, in this bringing together understandings, discussions, conversations, and connecting women across provinces. You know, that's one of the largest realizing because we were isolated or at least limited to physical presence in, in our... And we met so many women and gotten to know about them. So, the, the medium, social media, is an equalizer in many ways. But my caution has always been that it's not necessarily always an advantage because, as I said, the rear guard and the state arguably uses social media even better than us sometimes, you know. So, so you know, offline activism, the Aurat March has been significant because it's been determined to keep this connection between online and translated into offline activism. And it's different kind of feel and vibe when you are physically together occupying Frere Hall, occupying Hyderabad streets, on the streets of Sakhar, even in Quetta. Uh, in Lahore, it's always been a, a present, but larger, more performative, more colorful, more intergenerational. So I think what it does is it shows everybody, it sends the message out that we're not fragmented all the time, that we're not disassociated, and that we will come together when, when required, and we will make demands that are provocative, and we will expand the movement every year. And, and also, fortunately, tech-savvy young feminists who have helped us to understand how to use this space, right? So technology is no longer this male-dominant uh, kind of space. We've made, these women have made spaces even in that realm. Right, and just shifting gears a bit to focus on some of the challenges feminists have faced. One is the generational gap and this pattern of protecting leftist cis men and privileged cis men from accountability. Are there ways this is being challenged? Absolutely. So in 1991, uh, historian, Pakistani historian Aisha Jalal, uh, she wrote this article called The Convenience of Subservience. And she made two critical points about the feminist movement of that time. The first was that the women's movement, the feminists uh, of that time, were mobilizing and were active for demands that were related to elite women's needs and their class composition. And so that their priorities were determined by that. The second point that she made is that actually women of this class, upper and middle class activists, were not targets of Islamic bigotry, right? And I've written recently a rejoinder almost or an or a update on that called the defiance, not subservience. And what I've observed is that actually on both points, uh, there's been a critical shift. It's been disproven. This, these comments have been disproven over time. 
One is that the NGO movement, the women's activists from NGO movements are certainly not elite and, and upper middle class anymore. So these women are lobbying with legislative assemblies and they are led by middle and lower middle class NGO workers and activists. And this work is being done in rural and tribal areas as well. Many of these women are associated in some way or, or manner with Women's Action Forum. But basically, the class ceiling of NGO work has completely been broken. And it's across the country. There are young women forming all sorts of organizations and, and local collectives. And the other claim that, you know, women uh, activists and public office holders are not targets of Islamic bigotry has also been refuted, sadly, you know, from Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated in 2007. We've had ministers, political candidates, uh, prominent activists like Parveen Rahman, Farida Afridi, Sabine Mahmood, who was a civil rights, you know, activist. They've all been murdered for their political views by those who were associated with religious organizations or those who claimed faith-based motivations. So, what I'm saying is there has been a clear shift and even this, these critiques of the feminist movements are no longer tenable. And I think today, Abhishek, as you asked that what is the shift that is in terms of power dynamics and privileged men, I think very much so the sexual harassment movement is proven to be pivotal in exposing the privilege that men have always deployed of all classes, right, including liberal men and so-called secular men who maintain power by the use of sexual politics. But just again, as a point, a historical point, this is also not a new movement. Fawzia Saeed and other feminist activists of Women's Action Forum have doggedly been working for this legislation that was passed in 2010. Pakistan was the first South Asian country to pass a sexual harassment law. That's not an easy thing to do. It was always defied by Islamist groups, by Jama Jamiat Ulema Islam, Fazlur Rahman. And, you know, we had to go through, repeat it again and again, strategically bring it up in parliament. So. Changing the culture, these efforts are historical, but changing the culture means confronting religious groups, political parties, conservatism, clerical authority. So I think younger feminists are getting taste of this in this last Aurat March, where you know they had painted some murals, some really creative stuff, and their slogans were censored and even defaced. The murals were defaced by women's religious groups. Of course, that's their politics. You are going to have to deal with this and you're going to have to theorize about what to do and strategize on what to do about it. The, the challenge is becoming stronger. The challenge is becoming more confrontational. But the successes are also, you know, women are not backing down. The Aurat March still took up those slogans. We're still fighting those cases. Younger women are writing. Now there's far more literature being produced than there was ever before. And also, interestingly, more and more men want to become allies, particularly of a younger generation, and are looking for guidance on how to do this. Even Kandil Baloch had a lot of male sympathizers, which I think was a significant shift from the kind of patriarchal lens through which women were seen, either with pity or with some kind of, you know, hate or abuse. Uh-huh. And one of the aspects you highlighted in the article is the need for the movement not to get fragmented, just as it's building momentum and support. And with the Women's Action Forum, you've talked about the dialogues that you organized. What went behind planning them? And were issues of class and priorities brought up? Those dialogues were uh, important because they engaged on three levels. There was the need to understand formal legal process because we do have defamation laws in our countries in South Asia, which have immediately been slapped on to all those women who have called out on social media uh, about sexual harassment. So somebody has to deal with those. lawyers. Women lawyers don't understand this disengagement with the formal legal process and this total reliance on reparative justice through call outs. So it was important 
these three groups, you know, older feminists, younger feminists, and those who are in, involved in legal practices to come up with a conscious strategy that is not based on lack of knowledge. So these series of dialogues was important to build consensus as well. And I think that's that's been the core need for, for doing it. Now, in terms of how successful they've been in or, or what you say about the issues of class and priorities, I really think that it's about at the moment class is an issue that that is perhaps the most the least discussed. Everybody is aware of it, but I, I think that's hard work to get women of various classes to come and hear their voices in this in this process. We do have uh, members of uh, groups from working classes, uh, lady health workers. They're involved in everything Women's Action Fund does. The Women's Democratic Front, which is part of Awami Workers Party, the left party, they do a lot of work in communities. They stand for elections. So they are involved in it as well. But it is a matter of us coming together more and more to discuss and iron out how the state intervenes, how it co-opts our movements, how we need to constantly be vigilant about it. And what, how now, I think the important thing is, how are we going to, it's been three years we've been into the Aurat March, how are we going to follow up on the demands that we set out? How are we going to follow up on the performativity uh, rather than just make it an annual event? You know, it cannot become just an event. Really, if it's a bit to translate into a movement, it needs to have successes. It needs to claim certain rights and consist and be consistent, not just in the performativity, but in successes also, in goals. Some of the goals have to be met. Thank you so much, Dr. Zia, for passing through all those nuances and sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Abhishek. It's been a pleasure. What I liked most from all of what Dr. Zia said was the manner in which the Women's Action Forum not only had dialogues to understand which methods and strategies they wanted to employ, but also their dialogues focused on whether their methods were actually effective. Did they achieve feminist ends? The fact that these debates, whether to use religious scripture, symbolism and more, were taking place among women also shows the growing size of feminist or women-centered spaces in Pakistan. There are so many other rich details that we didn't get to fully discuss, and I do recommend reading the full article published by Dr. Zia in EPW. I've shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll have Dr. Amit Thorat and Omkar Joshi, who will be examining the forms and ways in which Indians continue to practice untouchability. What's unique about their approach is that they focused on not just the groups that are discriminated against, but they subvert the gaze to examine the beliefs and backgrounds of those who perpetuate and benefit from this subordination. There's a lot of other details that you don't want to miss out on, so do subscribe to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. This is the seventh episode of our first season, and we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social at epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with your feedback. And if you like what we're doing, Please share it with interested folks. Take care and do tune in next week.